Thank you, Jenna. Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm, I'm impressed that so many of you came out on a day like this. That's that's. I'm impressed anyway. I'm easily impressed though, so don't let it go to your head. Anything like that. <laughs> okay, uh, that it's mutual. How many people here bear a resemblance to somebody else in their family? Anybody? Anybody bear, bear a resemblance? Who do you bear a resemblance to? My dad. Your dad? You and your dad have similarities? So, you know, that's uh, my son. Actually, both my sons kind of look a little like me, but my, my one son, my younger son, has my voice. Exactly. Like, it's, it's ridiculous how much we sound alike. And, and he used to think it was hilarious uh, back in high school when we used to have, a, there used to be telephones in our house. Our phones were on a wire and we were free. But, 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 but in those days, you'd go and there'd be a single phone in the house and you'd answer it. And he thought it was just a wonderful thing in the world to answer the phone and say it was me. And the person on the other line is talking away like as if, see, I'm noticing younger people are smiling at this, but I'm not. Uh, either way, it was one of those things because we looked alike. We had a we had a similarity. We had a familiarity and a resemblance to each other because we were part of the family. That's the thing about family resemblances are not things you usually have to prove. They're just right there on the surface. You just see it. That's just the way that is. We're going to be looking at family traits this morning, but not ones that are passed down genetically or through physical DNA, but spiritually. We're going to read about some people who thought they were part of the family of God, but they're people whom Jesus gives a sort of a spiritual DNA test to, and the results come back, indicating they're not exactly who they thought they were. And we're going to see what we can learn about our own lives through this exchange today. We're going to see how this can apply to us in the discussion we'll read. Coming back to our study in John, if you want to follow along, if you'll head over to John chapter 8, please. The section that we've been reading takes place in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles, the time when the Israelites remembered their Exodus wanderings. And Jesus started preaching openly to the crowds in the temple, and that resulted in this protracted exchange. Pretty much the entire chapter has been this one long back and forth between Jesus and the religious leaders and Jesus and the crowds that are there. And during this give and take, Jesus has revealed a lot about himself. And a lot is being exposed about the people who are opposing him. So last time, Jesus revealed himself as the light, as the source of enlightenment for our lives, as the light, we could say, of God. He illuminates a life and the way of life that God intended for us. And we learned last week that we can, we can trust Jesus to guide us. It was a point that was made emphatically over and over, but it was right. It's a good point. We can trust Jesus as a light, as an illumination to guide us through life. So when we left off, it said in verse 30 that many believed on him as he was explaining this. So when we pick back up in verse 31, Jesus is going to address those who believed And there's some real irony to this discussion as it unfolds here, as as you'll see. So if you're there in John chapter 8, we're just going to jump into this. We've got several verses that we're going to be trying to cover here. So we're going to start with verse 21, uh, I'm sorry, verse 31, uh, where we left off last week. It says, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, remember, left off, many believed in him. You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But we're descendants of Abraham, they said. We've never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you'll be set free? 
Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. Yes, I I realize you're descendants of Abraham, and yet some of you trying to kill me because there's no room in your hearts for my message. So here we see, we're seeing here that Jesus was talking to the crowds that were believing, but, but just like last week, he's also talking to the religious leaders who are, at that time, hatching a plot for his destruction, for his demise. And again, I'll point out that Jesus has no interest in good PR. I mean, he, he just lost a lot of followers back in chapter 6. Remember, he was saying some very difficult things that made him kind of sound like a cannibal or something. And, and now, when he starts getting a whole new crop of followers... Instead of turning on the charm and courting their loyalties or their funds, he starts off with a challenge that comes across like an insult uh, as you're reading it. He says to really be, you know, you're believing in me, but to really be my disciple, you have to remain faithful to what I teach. In other words, you've got to live in it, have a life that's shaped by what he's come to, to reveal and to teach. He says, my teachings, he said, my message is the truth that will set you free. And of course, everyone bristles at this. And once again, we have one of these situations. John does this a lot. But we've got a situation where people fail to perceive who Jesus is, and it leads to some real misunderstanding in their, in their dialogue. These new believers of Jesus push back. We're the lineage of Abraham. We're the Jewish people. How can you say that we need to be set free? Now, it's clear, at least to me, that everyone in this conversation does understand what they're talking about here, that they're talking about something that's more than just governmental or civic freedom. Because, I mean, it would be ludicrous for them to say, we've never been enslaved to anyone, because if you know anything about the the history of the Jewish people, I mean, it starts with them being enslaved in in Egypt, you know, so, I mean, it's, it, Roman soldiers are probably standing there guarding this crowd who is beginning to grow and seem hostile. I mean, they were dominated by Babylon and Persia and the Seleucids, now Rome. Their whole longing for Messiah was a longing for national freedom. So they have to be talking about something other, you know, something else here. They, I believe that they're talking about their identity as God's chosen people. When they're saying we've never been enslaved, they're saying we have never lost our sense of identity. Sure, they may have been slaves in Egypt and Babylon, but they never lost the sense of who they are. They never accepted the domination of their conquerors. They never allowed themselves to be assimilated by the nations that swallowed them up. They always remained the children of Abraham. That's what they're saying there. And that means they catch what it is that Jesus was actually inferring by his statement about them needing to be free. He's saying that they aren't really the covenant people. He's saying just because you have the right last name doesn't count. Sin, the revolt of sin, of self against God, that is the real problem. That is the tyrant that rules all of mankind. And freedom from that is the only way to come back into this familial relationship with God. Freedom from that only comes through Jesus, is the claim he's making. The true son who truly sets us free. This is encapsulating what's going on here. 
The mistake that we're making is one that gets repeated all the time in our own contemporary setting. Maybe less so nowadays, but it's still fairly regular enough. You inquire about a person's relationship with God, and the immediate response so often is, well, I'm a member of such and such a church. I've been there for a long time. You know, I, I grew up in that church. My, my family were members of that church before I was. We're Abraham's offspring. We, we know what's going on here. But what's revealed in this passage, I mean, it's profound, but it's devastating. And it's all really very simple. Because I think we're learning here that a place in God's family comes in Christ and in his word, not mere association with church or religion. It's an age-old dilemma, confusing association with the things of God with a real relationship with God. It's a mistaken assumption that, that just by being interested in spirituality or showing up at a church meeting or identifying with a particular denomination or even social group, that these are the steps to getting right with God. But that's getting everything backwards according to what it is that Jesus is saying. It's like the tired old adage, you know, going to church doesn't make a person a Christian any more than going to a garage makes a person a car. For, for the Jewish people in this text... Being part of the covenant people just meant that they were born Jewish and they've embraced the religious and racial heritage that they have. Have the right last name, do the right things, and you're one of the chosen was the mindset. And Jesus is challenging all of that. He's standing on on its head. He plainly declares, no, God becomes your father and you become a part of the family through me, Jesus. It's, It's a... It's a heavy statement that he's making. I mean, you know, try to put this in a, in a modern context and imagine all of the ways in which we've firmly ensconced our sense of identity as Christians and imagine Jesus coming in and throwing that all up in the air. What are we going to do with that? How is he going to be responded to in our modern context if that were to happen? No, he's saying here, as the true son... He sets us free from our sins. He reconciles us with God and he declares us his siblings. You know, in the Roman world, a slave could be born into the family and be part of that family all through his life, but yet never enjoy the rights of that family. His, his, his att- attachment to that family ends with either his death or something else, but there's no sense that he was part of that heritage. But if one of the sons of that family declares that slave free invites him into the family, everything changes. He's suddenly now been given that place. That was the way Roman culture worked. That's, that's what this is playing off of. The idea that we were one people and Jesus adopts us and brings us in to be a different people. Freedom, he's saying, is not what we achieve by going to church or acting religious. It's what we receive by surrendering our lives to Jesus, meaning we find out what Jesus taught and the values that he embodied, and we let those shape our life choices. Like Janelle said last week, you jump, I jump. You forgive, I forgive. We surrender our own will to him. We invite him to to rule our lives, and he in turn sets us free to live as God's true children. That's what it all comes down to. He sets us free from the domination of our own self-will, which is what sin is. 
The phrase that Jesus says here, the truth will set you free. That's another biblical phrase that's so often uh, quickly quoted, but <laughs> so uh, usually misapplied. Jesus is very specific about the freedom that he's talking about here. That it comes from following his teachings. And that it's a freedom not just to do whatever we want or live for ourselves, but it is a freedom from our fallen selves and those dehumanizing impulses that tyrannized us through our existence. And it's the promise of the power and the guidance needed to live in ways that restore our humanity, restore us to who it was we were originally meant to be, to live the kind of life that God intended from the start, the creator who made us. But surrender to Jesus and embrace of his rule are the necessary first steps. Identifying with a church and pursuing spiritual things are what flow from that surrender. And to get all that backwards, we end up, we end up trying to work to manufacture our own freedom by attending something or doing something or learning some lines of doctrinal code that will finally make everything work for us. And that kind of life, I can speak from experience, is a frustrating existence. And it doesn't lead to what Jesus describes here, the freedom of children who belong to a loving God, the freedom to know that I'm loved by God. Well, Jesus keeps explaining all this. Verse 38, he says, I'm telling you what I saw when I was with my father, but you're following the advice of your father. (laughs) Excuse me. Our father is Abraham, they declared. No, Jesus replied, for if you were really the children of Abraham, you would follow his example. Instead, you're trying to kill me because I told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham never did such a thing. No, You are imitating your real father. They replied, we aren't illegitimate children. I don't know if you remember last week, but remember when when they said to Jesus, who is your father? And that was a whole thing that they were trying to point out that his, you know, the circumstances around his birth were kind of scandalous and suspect. They're bringing it back up again here in this day. We're not illegitimate children. The inference is there. God himself is our true father. Jesus told them, If God were your father, you would love me because I've come to you from God. I'm not here on my own, but he sent me. Why can't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't even hear me. For you are children of your father, the devil. And you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it's consistent with his character for he, was, he is a liar and the father of lies. So when I tell the truth, you just naturally don't believe me. Which of you can truthfully accuse me of sin? And since I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? Anyone who belongs to God listens gladly to the words of God, but you don't listen because you don't belong to God. Are you catching this? I mean, this is intense. All of this gets framed in the idea of family, of fathers and children. In a real sense, Jesus is saying to them, like father, like son. We know what that phrase means. It's probably not used as much nowadays, but it highlights that children will likely follow the patterns laid down by their parents. 
but it can also reference the way families will carry specific traits through them. The people around Jesus are claiming that Abraham is their father, that God is the father of Israel. But Jesus is disputing that, saying, you may have descended from Abraham. You may have his physical DNA, but you don't have his spiritual DNA. You don't seem like his children. You don't seem like God's children. You seem more like the children of God's enemy. Why? Because, and this is what he's framing it around, because of the way they're responding to Jesus. That's the bottom line on this. They don't have room for his teachings. They have their own plans and purposes. Their structure was already set up. They've already got accepted in it. They know how it works. They've got their own agenda. They're not interested in something that that disrupts their paradigms. And Jesus is saying, you may have the family name, but you aren't displaying any of the family traits in your lives. I think what this is telling us here is that that our response to Jesus reveals our family resemblance, either to God or to something else. You know, 11 years ago, there was a movie that that came out called um, The Imposter. I don't know if anybody ever saw that, but it was about a young man who claimed to be the long-lost son of a family whose son had been kidnapped many years before. The guy showed up. He didn't look like the lost son. I mean, he had the wrong eye color and a French accent. But, but the family wanted so badly to believe that for six months he assumed the, the lost person's name and lived with that family and carried on as though he were part until a private investigator got suspicious and, and started comparing photographs and physical traits, which you know clearly didn't match between the young child and this grown adult. And then that resulted in a court-ordered DNA test and fingerprint test, and the guy was exposed as a fraud. Well, yeah. The thing is, everyone should have known right away this guy was a fraud. He didn't bear the family resemblance. He clearly didn't look like it. Just claiming the name shouldn't be enough to be able to pass yourself off. And here is the uncomfortable reality, my friends. There is more to being in the family of God than just assuming the name Christian. We can't throw on the name Christian like a team jersey and assume that that title is all that's needed. So when I was in middle school, I went to a private Christian school and we didn't have you know, anything cool going on. But one day, uh, hey, I'm just being honest. One day they decided they were going to form a basketball team and that team was going to be playing, you know, other teams, uh, other schools and stuff. And man, I wanted to be on that team. I'm a middle school boy. That only makes sense. That's how you're going to advance in the world is you're going to wear a basketball jersey at school uh, when they know there's a game coming up. And I volunteered to be on the team, brand new team. They said, you know how to play basketball? I said, man, yeah, I love basketball. I did not know how to play basketball and never even really watched it. I am terrible at that. I'm, I'm just uncoordinated. I am not an athlete. And, but I got the jersey. And so I wore it all through the day, and I was feeling pretty smart and pretty cool. And we got to the game that night. We were playing another you know, Catholic school, and everybody's there, and it's a big deal. And, and so we're going to go out and do the warm-ups. And I'm wearing my uniform, and I'm feeling so good about everything until I was standing in line, and the ball came to me because we were going to do layups, part of the warm-up drills. 
Did I mention that I can't play basketball? I don't know if that came up yet, but I cannot play basketball. And everything was happy until suddenly that ball came to me. Now, in my experiences, when I shoot with a basketball, I shoot left-handed, but I was on the side of the, of the basket that was going to require that I use my right hand to do a layup. And my hands started getting really sweaty. And I should also mention that all the cheerleaders from the opposing school were underneath the basket working on a little cheer thing that was coming up. And I got the ball and it was slippery in my hands. I thought, I can do this. I can do this. And I got up there and that ball just squirted right out of my hands and right into the middle of all of those cheerleaders. And I think it hit one of them in the face. There were screams and everybody's running. And all of a sudden it became very clear that even though I was wearing a jersey, I did not know how to play basketball. I was not a basketball player. Our lives are going to reveal these things about us. Our lives are going to reveal whose family we belong to. Our response to Christ is going to expose our true DNA. Now, I want to say and qualify. When I, when I go into something like this right away, I know there's going to be some people who just freeze up in terror because they're thinking, oh, I, you know, I... I don't live very well. I sinned. I sinned on my way into church today. I, oh man, maybe he means that I'm not saved. So please don't misunderstand this. I'm not going to go back on something that I say regularly, and that is that we don't do this Christian thing well. Uh, we don't. When I say our lives reveal, reveal our response to Christ, I'm simply saying that even though we don't do this well, it means something to us. Jesus is still our pursuit in these things. We want to do this well, even though we don't have it all together, as Paul describes in Romans chapter 7. Jesus sort of described a DNA test over in Luke chapter 18. We don't have to turn there, but he told this parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector who were praying in the temple on the same day. But the Pharisee was posturing and he was saying, thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. I'm not a robber or an adulterer or worse, like this tax man that's next to me. I fast twice a day. I tithe weekly while the tax man only slumped to the wall and beat his chest and without even daring to look up, simply said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The DNA, according to Jesus, proved, the test proved that the tax man, not the religious poser, was truly part of God's family. It's our response to Jesus that makes all the difference. And that response will show up in life, even if it's as weak as what the tax man revealed there. Just that simple trust. I've got to trust that you'll have grace on me and change me from the inside out. And so in the way that we live and the way that we love and the way that we respond to others, we'll find that determination. I want to live like Jesus did. It's going to show up in fits and starts. And we want it to be so much better, but it's even in that want to that the DNA is revealed of who we are, who our Father really is. But I mean, if we go through our daily lives and there isn't even a thought to live for Jesus, I mean, we make our choices and, uh, you know, according to what it is that we want, not according to Christ's values. The kingdom of God is nowhere on our radar as we cruise through our daily decisions. We might be a person living under assumed identity. A divine paternity test might be in order for something like that. But, you know, that's something, listen, that, that only can come by the prompting of the Holy Spirit. I can suggest 
that we examine ourselves and, and determine if God's will is important or how, how this all fits in our lives, if we prioritize Christ's values over our own desires or, or comfort, at least on some level, but only the Holy Spirit can make those questions mean anything at all. To someone in God's family, those are powerful questions. Those are questions that immediately stir us. And if we've, if we've been listening and we recognize that the premise for our identity is God's great love for us, then we'll find peace and knowledge in the knowledge of that. And we'll set out with that commitment to follow after him, to be like him. He wants, he, he makes me want to be a better person. But to those on the outside of this, I mean, it's an interesting question. Are you really part of it? Yeah, that's interesting, but it really is of no significance. It's unimportant. So the thing is, we want our lives to reveal the family resemblance, don't we? We want that. We want to live in such a way that when people hear that we're followers of Jesus, they say, well, that makes sense. She's always been very loving. Oh, yeah, he's a very forgiving person, just like his dad. I could see that. Those are the things we strive for. Well, finishing up quickly, because I know this is heavy stuff, but uh, verse 48, the people retorted, the people were I was going to do it this way. I messed it up. <laughs> people responded, wow, this is very fascinating, something to pray and think about. No, actually, the people retorted, you Samaritan devil, <laughs> didn't we say all along that you were possessed by a demon? No, Jesus said, I have no demon in me, for I honor my father and you dishonor me. And though I have no wish to glorify myself, God's going to glorify me. He is the true judge. I tell you the truth. Anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. The people said, well, now we know you're possessed by a demon. Even Abraham and the prophets died. But you say, anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died. And so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus answered, if I want glory for myself, it doesn't count. But it's my father who will glorify me. You say he's our God, but you don't even know him. I know him. If I said otherwise, I would be as great a liar as you. (laughs) But I do know him and obey him. Your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. The people said, You aren't even 50 years old. How can you say that you've seen Abraham? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was even born, I am. At that point, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. Okay, so the crowd has gone from being composed of a few people who opposed Jesus, a few people who were starting to believe in him, to teetering on the makings of a mob here. And the hostility just boils over right at the end. They lash out at Jesus with their repeated accusation. He's representing something false. That's why they're calling him a Samaritan, the hybrid religion of Samaria. Maybe he's demon-possessed, which was basically a euphemism for saying somebody's nuts. You know, surely he's nuts either way. And Jesus responds, he's not, in fact, nuts. He's just communicating what his Father in heaven has been trying to reveal. And these words of Jesus from the Father are, are the way back into what the Father planned all along, this family. 
And they get what he's saying and they begin to warn him about the dangerous territory that he is wandering into here. Sort of like saying, you, you want to clarify that, young man? Uh, Abraham and the prophets like Moses and Daniel, they spoke words from God, but they all died. What are you trying to say about yourself? But again, I mean, Jesus doesn't back down. He, he insists that he's not trying to make statements about himself He's just revealing the Father's plan, the plan that's been in place all along, that worked its way all through the Scriptures and finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And Jesus points out that Abraham saw it coming, and he rejoiced in anticipation. And that's when they get incredulous. They're like saying, Abraham you know, lived 2,000 years ago, and unless you're Doctor Who, how did you happen to see him? And Jesus answered, with words that are like a record scratch that reverberates throughout history. Before Abraham was, I am. It's poor in grammatical construction, but it is rich and powerful in theological implications. We've read Jesus say this before. I don't know if you remember. Where Jesus refers to himself with the covenant name that God gave to Moses before the burning bush. Remember, the burning bush was there. Moses said, who should I say sent me? And the bush responded, I am that I am. Tell them I am will deliver them, the Israelites from Egypt. Here, Jesus is making a claim that no simple human could ever make. Before Abraham existed, I am. I am pre-existent with God, making him co-equal with God the Father. I am, yeah, I am God. There is no other real legitimate way to read what he's saying there. And the mob forming certainly got the message. (laughs) They start gathering stones to put this blasphemer to death right then and there. They knew what he was saying. But... Jesus slips away, pulls another one of those Jedi Messiah things. We're not told how he does it. I wish those are details that I would have liked to had. I don't, I, maybe they, you know, maybe they said, wait here, we got to go get some stones. We're going to stone you. And when they get back, he's gone. And they're like, oh man, I don't know. There's no, it's a mystery. The main thing is Jesus makes it clear that his mission and his message predates Abraham and the law. This is what God had in mind all along. This emanates from the Genesis project when he planted Eden. This is what this is all about. We realize that a family in Christ has always been God's design. A family. God never set out to create a religion, but a family, a multi-ethnic, multinational, national, multicultural family in God. He wants children, not minions. Every time we as humans try to accomplish our own freedom, we only end up making more chains. Chains of religion and obligation. But when the Son sets us free, He brings us into a family relationship with God, which begins transforming us from the inside out. The very thing that God had in mind from the start. He's a father gathering His children up and bringing them back home to Him. Wow, I didn't expect that. Sorry. Uh, this last week, I had all my children back in my house. 
had all of my children and my grandchildren. And the thought just kept coming to me over and over again. This is the clearest picture that I will ever get of the gospel. This is it. This is, this is what God, the Father, has wanted all along. His family back with him. The creation that he made, his beloved humans, he wants us with him. It's what he's always wanted. And this entire story, the entire biblical narrative, through its ups and its downs and its twists and its turns, has always pointed towards this. A loving father running down the road to grab us and catch us up and bring us home with him. From beginning to end, this has been the message. This has been the gospel. God wants a family. God wants us. Home with Him. It's what it's all about. So I'll calm down and we'll think about that. Let's, let's set out to live in a family relationship with God in Christ. Let's live this out in such a way that we start bearing the family resemblance all the more strongly because something changes within us and it begins to manifest in our outward responses. And let's rest assured that this life we live through all of its turns and trials and and twists, it's all heading towards home, towards home as as God gathers us up as the children that he loves. Because that's who you are if you've believed in him. If you've looked at Jesus and responded, I believe. That's who you are. You are the children of God whom he loves. I wish I had something more than words. I wish I had something more than just petty words. But it's, it's real. And I can tell you that I've touched it. And if you believe it, it makes all the difference in the world. So if you'll stand with me, let's pray. Father, you alone, you alone know our hearts. You alone know the mess that goes on in here. We struggle, we try, we fail. We set up to make obligations. We set out to create our own Tower of Babel to reach you somehow on our own efforts. And all along, there you are. All along, whispering. I've been waiting for you. Waiting for you to look to me. So, Father, I pray for every heart here. Awaken us to look to you to trust in Jesus and what he's provided for us. And I ask you, Father, to do that deep work of the Spirit that we can't do on our own, that we can't manufacture on our own, that change of heart that wants to be the kind of human you made us to be. I pray for every person here, Father, that you will do that in our lives, that by your Spirit you will awaken us to who we really are in you that you will revitalize our relationship with Jesus and that that relationship will be manifest in the way that we live. Do that work, Lord Jesus. That's not my work. That's not anyone's work here in this place. That's the work that you do. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen.